Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello and welcome to Conversations with the Boyce of Reason. I'm your host, Benjamin Boyce, and today's guest is Nina Power, who is a professor of philosophy in the United Kingdom. She's of Irish descent, just in case that matters to you. She wrote a book in 2009, 2010, 2009 it came out, and it was called The One-Dimensional Woman covered women's issues. This year, in August, to be more precise, she is releasing a book titled What Men Want. So she's been investigating gender issues from a philosophical standpoint. And in this particular conversation, that's what we talk about. We talk about identity and gender and men and women, how they don't get along, how they do get along, and basic philosophical principles. Really like her energy. I love her mind and how she thinks. And I think that we synced up rather well in this combobulation of interview topics. So without further ado, here is Nina Power. You know, I, I, I got an OED yesterday. I got, it came in the mail, uh, like the compact version of the Oxford English Dictionary, uh, which completely distracted me from totally uh, digging into all your work um, because <laughs> the English language is kind of like a fetish of mine for some reason. Um, but so today I was catching up on uh, articles about you and, and interviews about you. And somebody in The Guardian said that you were into critical theory. And I've been doing kind of a series on critical theory. And I was wondering if you wanted to talk about your stance on that because I've, I've interviewed a lot of people who are against it and I've seen certain manifestations of it that I find troublesome. So, but I think you find it useful. Yeah. I suppose you have to be very clear what we mean by critical theory. I mean, I would first and foremost define myself as a philosopher. That doesn't sound too pretentious. I mean, certainly that's my training. Um, so I, and that's what I teach. So, I mean, critical theory insofar as it kind of exists, often just refers to a certain kind of take-up of particular philosophical ideas, you know, for, let's say, contemporary relevance or something like this. I mean, there are obviously critical theory traditions, if you think about the Frankfurt School and, you know, that come out of Marxism and so on. Um, Yeah, and, and, you know, critical legal theory or critical race theory. I mean, I I don't know, because I think some of these things have maybe shifted meaning in the past little while. Like, I think maybe they did refer to actually, a, a, you know, a whole series of questions in a body of text, but not a, not a dogmatic ideology. You know, I mean, yeah. the, the clue is in the word. I mean, critical would be to, to in a sense, be critical of everything around you, um, mm-hmm. including the theory itself or any one particular theory. So, yeah. yeah, I mean, a lot of critical theory was attacking ideology and was attacking dogma. Yeah. Yeah. What what's your basic um 
where did you start like philosophically like what are like your roots and, and kind of where are you now in the work that you do or your thought yeah so i suppose i mean i was i went to warwick and i did undergraduate philosophy there um and warwick had quite a reputation in the 90s um being at the forefront of particular kind of ideas around um, cyber utopianism and it had this event called virtual futures and nick land taught there although i was never taught by by him um and so there was a kind of attempt to fuse let's say yeah theory with what was happening developments in technology i suppose and particular images of the future um but in a way i was always quite resistant to some of that i was always everyone kept saying that they were an anti-humanist for example like it, everyone had to say they were an anti-humanist at the end of the uh, 90s anti-humanist yeah huh. so there are lots of different ways of being an anti-humanist right you lots of different motives but and i would always be asking what's wrong with being a humanist you know what was so, wrong with being a humanist well exactly so i eventually wrote my phd on this idea of of humanism <laughs> um and anti-humanism and yeah it just turns out that people often don't really know what they mean when they yeah. say anti-humanism or humanism yeah. for that or humanism do you yeah. have an operative uh definition of humanism because that that's one term that's always shifting for me so i never yeah i mean i think i think you know in a kind of enlightenmental way we would say it's a kind mm -hmm. of um belief or commitment in human reason as the basis for um, organizing things in a way that is conducive, hopefully, to human happiness. But okay. I mean, humanism has its very um, unpleasant sides too, as do pretty much every political ideology. Yeah, um, such as uh, I guess um, what like. Well, a lot of the early humanists were also kind of committed to the idea of eugenics in particular ways. Yes. Um, yeah. You know, and yeah, this idea of like improving the species, you you know, various yes. ideas of kind of social Darwinism and so on. So I think, you know, whenever you're looking at these, the history of these terms, you know, sometimes they are, they have useful elements, but yeah, we shouldn't be kind of um, complacent about any one dogmatic ideology, mm -hmm. you know, whichever one is trying to assert itself at any particular moment. Mm -hmm. And I think the moment people start saying, no, we can't talk about this, or there's no, there's no debate, or there's nothing to discuss then, you know, this is, this is a problem. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's exhausting to always be questioning all the time, but whenever you're told not to question anything, that's when you should totally go full question. Yeah. I, I think for some people it's, it's almost um, impossible not to, you know, if somebody says don't do something or don't think about this or whatever, it's you, you feel like you must. And philosophers are historically incredibly annoying people, right? I mean, <laughs> states put them to death because they're so irritating because That's they true. always ask these like really annoying questions like why are we doing this or what what is this system for or why do you think this word means this thing you know so they're always leading young people astray and you know causing havoc hmm. so and in your popular work you've uh been attracted to or you've gone into discussions around gender you did a book called the one-dimensional woman and now you're doing a book on what men want yes what how, do, how in in what way is uh, what are some of the tools that you're using in philosophy to engage in gender and sex yeah i mean i think it's it's quite a, a kind of complicated question in a way i think partly just simply 
questioning assertion. So one of the major assertions today, I suppose, is that the the binary is a problem. Like binaries are bad, you know. Like to say that there are men and there are women is, you know, often attacked. Um, mm. Or to say that there are definitions of these words that work in particular ways and they have a particular use and they have a historical and social meaning. Um, you know, even to say that sometimes is kind of quite quite controversial. And I think a lot of women in particular have obviously been attacked very badly for, you know, trying to preserve language around womanhood and, and you know, at a legal level or a social level or a political level. And so I suppose in a, a sort of philosophical way, it's kind of to ask questions about, yeah, this increasingly dominant narrative. So one of the major dominant narratives that seems to have emerged over the last five, 10 years is this idea that men are bad, simply, you know, that men are um, somehow irreparably awful and yeah. toxic and, you know, that masculinity is, that there's no good idea of masculinity. Um, and, and I suppose just on some kind of um, visceral personal level, I just found this to be untrue. You know, it's like most of my encounters with men and the men that I love and care about and who are my friends, it, it doesn't fit. Like, it's just not an accurate description of my empirical experience of the world, right? Mm -hmm. It's not to say that some men don't do bad things, right? You know, men are responsible for most interpersonal yeah. violence, usually yeah. against Most bad other. things are caused by men, but most men don't do cause bad no, things. No, ex exactly. And and most male violence is directed at other men or against themselves and in terms of mm -hmm. male suicide, which is obviously quite high and in most Western countries. And so I suppose it was, yeah, I mean, uh, philosophers also always go back to basics all the time. They always want to reassert the fundamental questions, you know. So mm -hmm. is there, are there no things? Uh, is there one thing? Are there two things? Are there many things? You know, and, and often hmm. it's a battle over uh, numbers in a way or how we divide things, you know. Yeah, um, okay, yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, to sort of start with the assertion like that there are two sexes and, you know, there are men and there are women and um, we all have to live together and all of us are alive if we are alive, if we're, if we're still alive. <laughs> and hmm. we have a kind of um, sort of unavoidable... Um, Social, social life together you know you can try and be a separatist and I talk about separatism in the book you know whether we're talking about kind of lesbian separatist, separatism in the 70s or men going their own way you know these yeah. kind of separatist movements it's quite interesting to compare them the similarities and differences um, hmm. but actually most of the time we, we live in a mixed world you know at work or at school or in just outside you know whether we choose to spend time with members of our own sex or the other sex you know, nevertheless, there's a kind of reality <laughs> yeah, <laughs> to other yeah. people. And, you know, there's bound to be kind of disagreements and, and, and so on. And we all have to kind of struggle to, to get on and live together. And I suppose, you know, I'd seen a lot of men be very unduly punished, I think, for minor transgressions. And I think... Um, I was thinking it was just, it was thinking about reconciliation really it was like how do we get beyond like resentments some of which might be well placed um and but I think there's a kind of media campaign like it's very easy to kind of encourage resentment like if you say this group of people are responsible for all of your problems 
right? Yeah. So you say to women, men are to blame for all of your problems. Or you say to men, women are responsible. You know, you've had one bad experience with one woman, therefore all women are bad. Mm-hmm. And, you know, resentment, resentment is a very, very powerful force, right? You don't need to read Nietzsche to understand how powerful it is, right? And lots of people make a lot of money and, and you know, gain, um, I don't know, you can manipulate people by encouraging resentment quite mm. easily. And I suppose it was thinking about like what happens after Me Too and what happens after, you know, this historical reckoning and, you know, how can men and women then get back to having a laugh? <laughs> yeah, in a way. yeah. Or being yeah. friends or just, you know, they don't have to be friends, but, you know, just like encountering each other in the world and not being afraid of each other, actually, I suppose. Yeah. I. Yeah. You know, I critique a lot of the uh, implementations of what certain people call queer theory, uh, which is, uh, I guess it's proposing a solution of infinite genders or no gender or violating the binary and, you know, allowing people to uh, identify into all these categories that, you know, you ask, well, what is it made out of? And it's very self-referential. Even some of the categories are, I don't have a category. Which is like, okay, what are we really talking about anymore? And, you know, I keep on proposing, like, uh, if you guys want to make this system work, I want to see the epic. I want to see the Odyssey. I want to see the, uh, you know, the Vanity Fair. I want to see society implemented and a a good story happen in this because narrative makes things make sense for me. Uh, So I I just wonder if you've done any uh, thought experiments in that way uh, and if what you're proposing now is kind of a thought experiment in a certain respect of reconciliation between these two sexes. Uh, And are you drawing upon uh, culture's past? Are you looking towards a a better cultural future? Yeah, I think both to some extent. I mean, you know, like the word for man, via, is also the root word for virtue, and we live in a kind of post-virtue culture in many ways, right? The very idea of virtues is is kind of anathema, right, to the yeah. modern mind. You know, like we obviously generally largely live in a secular, post-religious, you know, free-for-all of, um, I don't know, of, of, hmm. of beliefs or no beliefs. And yeah. we, but this, this still doesn't give us any guidance as to how we are supposed to behave or how we're supposed to treat each other. And... You know, so obviously this goes wrong quite often. You know, people often make mistakes. And I think a lot of things that are put down to malice are often just errors, you know, in yeah. terms of people upsetting each other. And, you know, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Um, but I think on the, the, I mean, one of the major shifts that's happened on the question of gender, right? So John Money comes up with this concept of gender, right? He's, he's trying to detach sex and gender and it, he tries this experiment himself, very disastrous on these two boys, the Rhymer twins. And, mm-hmm. you know, one of them loses his genitals in an accident. And John Money thinks, well, OK, we can bring this boy up as a as a girl. And, you know, because gender is socialization, right? That yes. gender is separable yeah. from sex. It's not and, emergent at all. It's all cultural. Yeah. Blank slate it, kind of. It, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, okay. And then, you know, some of the second wave feminists think this idea of gender is very useful, right? Because it's it says right, women don't have a natural, you know, that women have been told that they have to be a certain way on the basis of their biology, mm-hmm. right? But actually... Made unborn, yeah. Yeah, and that, um, you know, and this this imposition is, is called gender, right? And it's kind of imposed upon sex. 
So gender becomes like the negative expectation of how you're supposed to behave. And so for a lot of the second wave, it's about um, expanding or even abolishing gender by getting rid of gender, because gender is a social imposition. And it's mm -hmm. and, it, and it inhibits both boys and girls and men and women from doing and being who they want to be, who they want to love and what they want to wear and what interests they have and so on. Right. So but it's a kind of double edged sword that they do this. Right. Because then gender becomes so um, detached from sex in a certain way. You know, and that gender starts to take on this other meaning, which is just something like a feeling. You know, it's an inner feeling. I feel like this. But gender then becomes what we used to call personality or character. You know, so the question might maybe is like, what has happened to personality or character? You know, hmm. like, why are people not, uh, I don't know, in a way, content yeah. to be a kind of constant process of um, ambiguity and becoming and you know, that, yeah. that this kind of lockdown on identity and so on is yeah. a kind of symptom of um, insecurity, you know, because it's like saying, I am this, you know, but no one is ever this, right? Yeah. People are always just in the well, and then, they, and then they create a this that can be any of those. You know, like like fluid or queer or what, well, whatever, mm. like, because like they even there's like a subconscious understanding that what they're doing is trying to escape category while clinging to category at the same time. Yeah. And, and like to, to kind of, you know, blow up the categories. I, I understand that kind of motive. Right. I it completely it's like everybody should be free to express themselves however they want. Right. It's there is mm. no kind of issue with that. And I think. That's what we were moving towards. And you could say that the second wave was genuinely progressive in this regard, right? It was trying to, you know, get rid of those sorts of gendered expectations for boys, both boys and girls and men and women. Mm. And, you know, permitting a kind of greater brand bandwidth of like expression. And somehow that kind of got changed. And um, I don't know, like so completely detached from reality in a certain way that, I don't know how to put it. It's like, it's no longer, yeah, it's no longer about who you are as a, as a person, as a character, yeah. all of the mistakes you've made, all of the things you think, you know, but, but something else, something much more rigid. Yeah. So there's a kind of paradox, I suppose, in this idea that there's, that fluidity becomes rigid. And I mean, something like non-binary, I mean, of course, is the most binary because if you say you're non-binary, it depends on everyone else being boring and binary yeah. for you to define yourself <laughs> against them. Say like, oh, I'm much more interesting. I'm a curious combination of masculine and feminine, or yeah. no, no. And it's like, well, everybody is a curious combination of masculine and feminine. You know, yes. it's like everybody's yeah. non-binary, right? It's like yeah. no, there's not even the most extreme stereotypical cases in that culture are are still going to not be like, a, you know, apex woman and apex man, right? Everybody yeah. has a whole series of interests and yeah. mannerisms and expressions and whatever. So yeah. I don't know. I think there's been this colossal confusion about. Um, uh, yeah, character or personality and identity, you know, which mm -hmm. which happens to be very, very um, uh, amenable to a particular kind of capitalist, consumerist co online culture. Okay. Um, capitalist, uh, consumers. Okay. Um, I want to propose something because we're, we're, we're doing a lot of shotgun, which I love. So like there's all these concepts floating around in this cool soup. But it seems like uh, earlier in that we were talking about how virtue 
Like we lost virtue. And I think I propose that we lost virtue because we wanted to be free from religion. We wanted to be free from a hierarchical structure, but that, that, that came with virtue. So we didn't know where to put virtue. Uh, and we also wanted to be free to be from norms. Like we, we want to have this ability to be beyond norms or interact with a norm whenever we feel uh, it's suitable. But the problem with human beings is that the way that our mind works with the future and with the past is that we come up with these heuristics and these expectations, which become normative. Like we need norms in order to navigate the environment. And and that that uh, the breaking free from norms, the breaking free from religion, uh, also kind of like the breaking free from virtue or expectation of behavior, the ability to judge behavior. Uh, we we lost the network in which we found ourselves. We we no, we lost that which we were able to 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 contextualize our individuality, our who, and and the process of developing that who and relating that who to other who's. And and without that structure, now it's just fragmented into a bunch of what's. I like what you where you put in that uh, some some sort of capitalist consumerist culture is now the guiding normative force in a way, and and how we market ourselves actually in that we market ourselves as this is that we have a profile and a bio with all these different signifiers that signify all these different interactions and stuff and distill it down into easily digestible uh, bits so that people can recognize us as this, as that, as the other mm-hmm. thing. So that, um, I, yeah, I think, I mean, falls in your court. yeah, one of the things that I suppose comes to mind is this question of community. I mean, if you have smaller communities in which people know each other and you have networks and, you know, there is a kind of, if somebody starts sort of acting out or, is obviously very unhappy or something like this, then it becomes a question for the whole community because it's also reflecting, you know, the community's values as it were, mm-hmm. right? So mm-hmm. so the, if you detach people as individuals, if, if you know, when you atomize people and, and they become completely unmoored from any sense of community or they try to recreate community at a global level, let's say on internet platforms, mm-hmm. you know, they're still a striving for some form of basic thing like recognition, for example, um, you know, um, acknowledgement of people's pain and suffering, and, you know, everybody suffers, you know, like I think that yeah. the problem is with this kind of hierarchy of suffering is the idea that some people's pain is more privileged than other people's, you know, or mm. that some people, mm. if they suffer, they don't really suffer, you know, yeah. and I think this is one of the, the problems. And I try to talk about this is in the book, it's like a zero sum game. You know, if, if social life is conceived as a zero sum game, then everybody is competing for small amounts of like attention or, hmm. you know, so these will become like partly strategies for gaining attention. Yeah. You know, okay. if you assume yeah. that there's only a limited amount of, of it. Okay. Um, is there? No. Is there not? No, there's infinite yeah. attention. Uh, yeah. I mean, it, attention is just whatever you choose to pay attention to. Right. So, okay. But I if mean, you want it from other people, it is a resource. Um, yeah, sure. And I, I think, but I mean, let's say marriage is a commitment, right? It's marriage is, is still happening. It's relatively unpopular these days. You have apps, you can go and meet, you know, a million people and have sex with random strangers. And the worst thing yeah. you can do is fall in love with them because that would be a terrible acknowledgement of your human failing, right? But let's say you commit yourself to somebody and you're married to them for like 25, 40 years. Like, let's say you take the till death do us part seriously, you know, in a way, the decision is also about attention, 
right? It's like, I'm going to give my attention to this person and they're going to give the attention to me. And in a way that should be sufficient, you know? Mm -hmm. I mean, you could say, well, not everybody gets a partner, right? Yeah. And then, yeah. you know, you have the incel question and this kind of thing, yeah. right? Which yeah. is yeah. a complicated one to answer. And I think a lot of men and women are not necessarily well positioned to want or to accept the idea of, you know, of being with someone else for that sustained period of commitment. You know, we have a very fleeting culture, a very fickle culture. Yeah. No. And hmm. yeah. So, I mean, it, it depends which thing you think comes first, I suppose, like the disintegration of communities, also the disintegration of virtue. But yeah, I mean, even if you're thinking about something like patriarchy, you know, this, this demon word, but the patriarch in the, the Bible is also someone who cares for other people. It's like the person, the man who takes responsibility. And it seems to me that like no one really wants to take responsibility, that actually there's a kind of lack of patriarchs in a certain way. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. As in, you know, to have people who are saying, right, okay, let's look after each other, you know, stop doing this. This is going to cause you pain. And, you know, yeah. that, that kind of human knowledge is based on a lot of folk wisdom and tradition. And all of those things have kind of been eroded as well, or they're kind of, yeah. Uh, neglected so we've kind of even though humanity has learned all of these lessons basically um and they're pretty much always the same because human beings haven't changed that much you know modernity hasn't really made us you know stop feeling particular emotions that are described before modernity well it depends on uh how liberal your uh psychiatrist is with with uh, the pills but yes right exactly <laughs> the mechanisms and, yeah. are still in in effect no, sure. And I mean, you know, I was thinking today, just walking about in the sun and, you know, how the language to describe very particular forms of emotion, you know, when you think about Burton's anatomy of melan melancholy or mm. the humours or these theories, you know, these, or, or Hobbes when he describes all of these different emotions, Spinoza as well, you know, we kind of lose a language, we, we lose the subtlety of language to describe very specific emotions if we just say, oh, I feel sad or I feel happy, right? Yeah, yeah. There's a million different ways of feeling sad and happy for that matter. Yeah. You know, and so, and, and then to bluntly kind of treat these things as it were, you know, with medication, of course, it's like, you know, we're dominated in the 90s. You know, I remember Prozac and SSRIs really hitting the, the scene, right? Yeah. It became a kind of acceptable thing. Yeah. Yeah. The, uh, the problem with the idea of responsibility, um, okay. So the patriarchs in the Bible were responsible folk, uh, but there was this notion undergirding that responsibility was responsibility to what they owned. Um, and it's easy. There's one reading of ownership and property that it's, it's a one-way street, that there's the one who controls the other thing. Then there's this other understanding, which is subtle, which I think might be lost, of this two-way street, of being owned by, by your property, being uh, your, your reputation is in how well you manage that or how that actually functions. So there's this, uh, and this is ancient so, uh, and it, maybe it's an accidental structure that doesn't need to exist anymore, but the man, uh, at least in the Bible times, we're talking, oh, I'm not promoting this. I'm just saying that in this structure, the man was the outward facing, uh, you know, uh, decider or whatever. And then the, the female inside of that was contained by the man, but her domain 
was, you know, kind of guarded by the man, but inside of his territory was actually her territory uh, in, in a way. And b due to the ways that the stories were told, uh, due the, to the ways that the stories are interpreted, uh, we can see the female as the lesser of the subjugated rather than understanding them being mutually subjugated and mutually reliant on one another. And that mutuality yeah. has been kind of disrupted by this idea or this reading of property. Not to say that property hasn't had its faults and not to say that men haven't like fucked up the responsibilities that they've inherited and they've been given. Um, so what do you think? Yeah, sure. I think it's further complicated. I mean, in a way you're talking about the relationship between like the oikos and the polis, right? And oikos is the home, right? It's, it's also where we get the word economics from, right? So yes. in a way, what we have is a kind of entire world made market. Like, the, you know, the yeah. world is a The personal is political, yeah. Right. But, but it's so in a way that there is no private sphere. And I mean, feminists make this point, too, for very different reasons. But it's, you know, the, the public and the private are no longer separate entities. Right. So you don't have that separation of like the domestic or the, the oikos, the household and and the, the, the political. Right. Hmm. You know, which would have been where men came to dis yes. di yeah. to decide how to solve disagreements, let's say. Yeah. Um, so given, I mean, in a way, like there, I think there's no, there's no going back, right? Like the genie is out of the bottle, as it were, like women are obviously equally capable of almost everything men are, right? They're women are workers, they're moral agents, they're sexual beings, you know, that mm -hmm. to pretend otherwise, you know, and I don't think the older systems necessarily pretending that they weren't that it was just a different arrangement, right? But that arrangement yeah. is, is no longer possible, you know, and I think you know, for mm. better or worse, you know, so but, you know, what you have, though, I think is a generalized infantilization of the culture at the same time, right? So you have, basically, everyone is supposed to assume responsibility for themselves, right? Mm -hmm. But at the same time, you have a culture that kind of encourages people to sort of dissipate their energy and to, you know, I don't know, get addicted or, get, you know, run around sort of not, you know, not committing necessarily to mm -hmm. anything, mm -hmm. Yeah, um, yeah. Not and not just relationships, but to careers yeah. and to, you know, I guess monuments, like working on a monument for, you know, three or four generations. That's not part of anything. Yeah. So this kind of, you know, idea that there's always something better and there's always something new, you know, it's kind of fetishization of novelty, I suppose, you know, mm -hmm. which is in itself mm -hmm. very addictive. Um, yeah, so I don't know. So there's a kind of generalized lack of lack of responsibility, and I, I mean the two way street thing is also interesting. I mean, if you read like Baudrillard's book on seduction, you know, he's a very interesting book where he talks about that. He says women have never lacked power, right? So this idea that you know women need to take power from men's worlds, you know, and that they what women, you know, this idea of like representation, let's say having fifty fifty men and women in parliament, you know, this kind of quotaization. Yeah, yeah. Of, of representation, you know, and Baudrillard says that like this is to misunderstand what power is. You know, this is a, this is to misunderstand the power that women have always had, and he argues that in a way their power is is usually um, on the side of a secret. You know, that it's something that can't be represented or articulated in a particular way. Mm. But you know, if you think about the kind of control, you know, politically or domestically that women exert you know, over the family or over men. Mm. It's very powerful, right, historically. Yeah. You know, why yeah. do men do things? Many, many things have been created in order to impress women, right? Yeah. 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No. Yeah. You, you can see that in, uh, you know, the stereotypical male feminists like, oh, is this what women want? Then I'll be that. Um, and then use that kind of as a cover for a lot of misogyny because he thinks he's like the, 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 the regulating, the regulation on his misogyny, so-called is, is taken off because now he's championing women. You know, there's, there's always that the men are always, we're always a large portion of us are always subject to the power that women have over us. And I think that there's a large portion of misogyny that is actually a a way of disparaging just how powerful women are. I'm I'm talking about like locker room jokes and and kind of disparaging women in in voice because it's actually a response to something that's, you know, troubling for the men and the men trying to get. Yeah, totally. And I think, I think it's, I talk about this in the book and I think it's absolutely worth acknowledging this power, both for men and for women to do that. Right. And in order to kind of, um, yeah, circumvent, preempt this resentment, right? Because in a way, resentment is the problem. And could you define resentment in this? Where where does resentment come from then? Yeah, I don't know. What's a good theory of that? Well, I I mean, it comes from a, from, from a feeling of lack, I suppose, of thinking that you don't have something that you think you want. You could say, or something or the, was taken from you. Yeah, There's or that someone else something. has something that you want, right? So let's say you don't have a girlfriend, and you think yeah. you want the girlfriend, you know, and yeah. either you, you can resent other men, you can aim to be better, you can aim to improve yourself, right? You can go to the gym, you can work out, you can, you know, yeah, like, in, or you can blame women, you know, like MGTOW go very far in this regard in some ways, you know, when they they kind of basically saying we're not playing this game like all women are gold diggers all women are x you know mm-hmm. like and the system uh, itself is set up to uh empower them over us and because uh, I, I know a lot yeah. of migtau have uh, become that way because of the way that the uh, i guess family courts have treated them uh robbing them of their children and, and uh, a lot of their property for the sake of what the woman wanted yeah exactly and you know so there is kind of real feelings of resentment there right for you know, correctly or otherwise. And yeah. Um, if, 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 so what would be the opposite of resentment? Like if, yeah. if resentment is a great motivator, what is, what is like a kind of maybe uh, equal and opposite, but maybe not as uh, attractive in the short term, but perhaps much more uh, powerful in the long term? I don't know. I suppose a combination of something like acceptance um, but also perhaps a sort of like finding delight in the cosmos, you know, the, the idea that, yeah. yeah, that that in a sense it's not anyone's responsibility other than yours for changing your attitude, right? Like, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, and that the, mm-hmm. that you can find beauty everywhere. Like, you don't have to possess to go to, back to the, you know, conversation huh. about possession. Yeah, you know, the, the beauty is kind of all around you. For example. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I think it is very hard to get to that point. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, especially if you get stuck in there, if you don't do uh, some very early work in life or uh, whenever you're met with a situation in which you are immersed in, in in envy and resentment, you know, there's a moment in most of our lives where we have to go through like deciding whether or not to give ourselves over to resentment or like mm. wrestling with that and then putting structures in place where you're kind of immune to it going forward. Cause you understand like, if I go down that path, that's where I'm going to be. And I don't want to be in that place because everything is defined in such a way that limits my possibility for, for one example of why not to go that route. 
Yeah, exactly. And I think you can hang your resentment on lots of different things. You could hang it on the opposite sex, but you could also hang it on capitalism or you yeah. could hang it on, you know, your boss or whatever. It's it's kind of... Yeah. yeah. And I think maybe coming to maturity or becoming an adult, which is becoming increasingly difficult, is also precisely mm. recognising or realising this, which is why I think figures like Jordan Peterson attract such, on the one hand, um, you know, very welcomed and very popular but on the other, a very um, attacked in a way because yeah. it's, it's very basic what he's saying. It's like, you know, take responsibility for your own life, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And that's like not a message that a lot of people want to hear. Yeah, yeah. You know, because they want a structural explanation for why they feel individually miserable. Yeah, yeah. And and there are there are... There's validity to a lot of structural critiques. There's a validity to a lot of intergroup resentment in America. We have uh, certain groups that have resentment towards our structure because of historical wrongs that are objectively true. Uh, but then you ask, well, if we're going to go forward, to what degree, how do we treat the past and how do we articulate the past? And then people who don't have that burden uh, we're going to have to help you. We're going to have to work together eventually. So to what degree are we going to have to pay uh, through uh, various means to overcome and to nullify that that resentment or those grievances, let's say. And I don't think that resentment necessarily has the proper uh, – it doesn't end up with good outcomes quite quite often, um, though it's understandable. No, absolutely. And and so I think, yeah, it's not to say that people, it's illegitimate to feel this way. And in a way, the book, I was trying to um, actually listen to the resentment, right, of like men's rights activists, mm, for example, mm-hmm. which are usually yeah. dismissed. It's like, well, is yes. there any, you know, what's the reality behind this, you know? And um, I think this process of listening is important. You know, I think a lot of the time people don't think that they're being heard, yeah. you know, and they yeah. say, like, I feel this, I'm upset about this you know, this terrible thing happened to my people or to people like me. And, you know, and I, but I think the urge to destroy or to, to just, you know, to, to pretend that the past was a bad place and the present is a good place, for example, and that all we need to do is just destroy all vestiges of the past isn't Mm -hmm. going to work Mm -hmm. because human beings are not dissimilar. You know, we're the same kind of being, you know, this idea that, you can suddenly become like this moral paragon and everyone before you was like an idiot and immoral. I mean, it just can't be true, you know? Yeah. Well, and, or the opposite, uh, the case of deifying people in the past and saying that they're flawless and, and above and beyond, uh, you know, the trappings of my uh, lowly morality or my time's lowly reality. You know, I think every age has heroes and different responses to the conditions of that age. And then those, uh, the sins of that age are indelibly stamped in the characters of, of, you know, the heroes of of that age too. Uh, you know, there's always, more than one dimension, two dimensions, and it's really difficult to distill that when you're in a culture war, when you're trying to get power, when you're seeking power in a political sense, which is which is one thing that I wonder what you think about, like distilling, uh, you know, gender, let's say, into power relationships uh, can be good for getting one's way or making affecting structural change, but doesn't it have downstream effects? Like like not everything is power or do we forget that there are different ways in which power operates on these different levels, the interpersonal level, the, you know, in the bedroom yeah, and that, in the boardroom, et cetera? Yeah, I think there's kind of huge confusion about what people refer to when they talk about power. Yeah. It's like, you know, everyone's supposed to more implicitly understand what power is. I mean, but is, <laughs> is power having a lot of money? Is it being very strong? 
Is it um, being very yeah. attractive? Is it, you know... Yeah. Um, it's being free to do, free from certain rules, free from certain weights, yeah. Free yeah. from or free for, yeah. Yeah, and, and so, you know, but but it's generally like people with... It's, it's a bad thing, you know, so it's like people are abusing their power or people have power and they shouldn't have it or, you know, figures mm. are, are seen to be powerful. But again, it's maybe this responsibility question as well. I mean, if you're the CEO of a large company, you also have enormous amounts of responsibility. Yeah. You know, yeah. which would be a nightmare. I couldn't imagine anything worse than yeah, like yeah. running a major company. It would be like, yeah. I could, you know, my goodness me. I mean, I wouldn't be able to like run around the field all afternoon. <laughs> like, yeah. Well, you, know, you feel towards being a CEO what a lot of people feel towards writing a book, but at least you've written your books, right? <laughs> yeah, although it's painful. I'm not going to lie. It's, it's not easy. <laughs> it's a horrible thing to do. No, I, I I looked for the book. Uh, is it published yet? No, I it's, it's okay, out okay. August. Okay, yeah. okay. So you have some. You're still fiddling around with it, or I, it it's it's done. It's done. Typeset. Okay. Oh yeah. wow. Okay. Yeah. yeah. It, um. So <laughs> I don't want to ask the question, but I have to ask the question. What do men want, and why do you want to know? Right. So the title is a, is a jokey reference to Freud who very infamously asked the question, what does woman want, right? So, like, with my previous book, like, One Dimensional Woman is not is a joke about Marcuse's One Dimensional Man, obviously. Yeah, um, yeah. And But the, it's also a joke on, play on the words men and women, because man is also yeah. the neutral term, right? But then yeah. I kind of sexed it by saying man and woman, right? So, and the, the Freud joke is similar. So, it's, it's the same idea. It's like, okay, well, Freud asked this question. Why can't I ask this question? And of course, yeah. basically, I say it's completely unanswerable. Of course, I don't know what men want, right? Yeah. So, but I have this bit in the introduction where I asked a lot of my male friends to tell me what they wanted. So, there's a whole like list of things that men want. Like wanted out of life, out of women, out of... Uh, yeah, so, so okay, there are anything. a whole range of things. So they say yeah. like, you know, a shed or to be left alone or a beer or pussy or um, a pleasant woman or, you know, whatever. So there's a whole like list of things. Yeah, yeah. But of course, I mean, like telling, you know, the idea that you can say what a whole category of humanity's desire is, is completely idiotic. Of course you can't. Like... So I don't pretend to answer the question, but I think it's just a very funny title yeah. in that kind but of But why do you want to know? Like, what what's compelling you to want to know what men want? I suppose I'm interested in this question of desire and how it plays out politically and socially. Okay. And I suppose, you know, as I started by saying, you know, given that men seem to be um, really being kind of punished by at least a certain section of the media in the last five, mm -hmm. ten years, um, it was a kind of question about, you know, what's going on with that, really, I suppose. Mm. And, mm -hmm. you know, of course, there are like infinitely different men, you know, like I know loads of men and they're all really different from each other, right? Mm -hmm. Just as mm -hmm. women are, you know. So this idea also of like denying people's individuality and, mm -hmm. you know, their very different modes of being in the world, I think, you know, was was really irritating when you read these things about toxic masculinity and so on and like everything being spun. So even things like mansplaining, you know, this idea that like if a man tells you, oh, yeah. mansplaining, mansplaining, it's like, oh, a man talks to you about something he's really into, you know? Yeah. And you're like, oh, that's bad. Why? Because it might be yeah. really interesting. And sometimes yeah. people get carried away, you know, they start going on about something they're into and it's not, 
it doesn't tell you anything bad about them. You know, it's it's like mm-hmm. they might just be enthusiastic or overexcited. Yeah, there, there's a way to steel man that because I, I did a, a short little one-off video about that because the UN women paragons of communication skills, uh, it's, you know, came out like, I think it was on International Men's Day, too. So they bash on men when it's Men's Day. And then and then they decenter women when it's Women's Day. Yeah. <laughs> so, whatever. Okay. That's a whole other conversation. But you know, they, they were talking about mansplaining or whatever like that. And I made a video, you know, just talking about the dynamics of that and reading people and being around somebody who doesn't read you, you know, and how do you like, how do you interact with somebody who's not good at reading that you don't want to hear what they have to say. And, uh, you know, women uh, gave me some comments about how, like, there is there is these dynamics between the sexes where men assume that they know more than you. Uh, and, and so they'll talk down to you. Have, have you experienced that yourself? And, and how do you read that or recontextualize that into you being empowered or whatever? No, because I'm so arrogant and so clever myself that they never bother doing that with me. Okay. Oh, really? So you walk into the room, they're like, ah, what do I do? They roll no. out the carpets. No, sure, but I, I think there's a subtlety, like there's subtlety in these things. You know, I think it's, yeah. you know, every interaction is different and complicated. And I think that, you know, there are ways that people can understand um, if they're being a bit boring or whatever. And everybody's done it, you know, and like, mm-hmm. I don't know. It's, I, th- I mean, I do think there are kind of differences in the way in which men and women are socialized. And this is why the second mm-hmm. wave wanted to change that because mm-hmm. you know i do think women are, are like are still a bit trained and i feel it myself to be very patient with men you know like you're kind of taught to put men's feelings first in some ways mm-hmm. and it's very subtle mm-hmm. how these things are communicated actually mm-hmm. and are you, so, are, you, are you yeah yeah are you not being trained to wait out the man in a way I mean, patience is is the skill of the powerful because mm-hmm. I, I, I spent a lot of time working with children in preschool and what you have to learn is patience. You have to learn to let them have their emotion and then understand that you're playing the longer game. Uh, so I wonder if, if a way uh, that the socialization, if there's not a positive reading on that socialization, women put men's feelings first because they're going to run out and then they're going to get into a very weak, malleable state. And then you get to set them up in a different direction. I'm just saying, no, like, no, the long-term maybe, thinking. You know? Maybe. I mean, I suppose, you know, it depends Yeah, what, what I, you know, there's there's a form of dialogue and a form of conversation, let's say, between friends, which is kind of infinite, yes. potentially, right? It's an ongoing conversation where you can talk about everything. And it's, it's, it's wonderful to have this partnership with somebody, right? To have a dialogue with whoever, uh, you know, a friend of either sex. And... You know, I mean, if if you're talking about kind of a romantic relationship, yeah, I think probably if a woman thinks that this man is a kind of interesting proposition, they would be willing to put up with a lot in order to sort of <laughs> secure that man if that's what they yeah. wanted. Sure, yeah. I I don't I don't deny that, but I don't. That's not the kind of um, the vast quantity of interactions that we have. Okay. Have. So I, you're talking I, more like in, in stranger situations or in professional situations? Yeah. I mean, so the okay. book, I talk about heterosociality, right? The Ooh. fact that we live in a mixed world. So rather than yeah. heterosexuality, but heterosociality, the fact that men yeah. and women are together, you know, most people go to um, co-ed schools, most mm. workplaces are completely mixed, you know, like our average interactions with people and, you know, this this kind of complicated question about the extent to which we see a person and the extent to which we see sex, you know, it's like, which do we, how do we see them? You know, we, mm-hmm. do we, 
we we obviously see both if we have an interaction with someone we make a judgment about who they are perhaps you know we think oh that person's in a good mood or that that seems like a nice person or you know or that person's like unpleasant or whatever and and but do we see that as kind of absolutely overlaying their sex you know or not Mm -hmm. right what is character apart from sex if you sort of Mm -hmm. mean yeah and yeah most of the time it doesn't matter most of the time we don't need to resolve that question actually yeah it's only in in particular situations that it might matter and yeah we might have a preference for for which sex we prefer to spend time with you know and i i think a lot of the the sort of attacks on men in recent years have often been around this idea of men wanting to spend time with other men you know like that as if that's a bad thing you know as if mm-hmm. we must be mixed all the time you know and there shouldn't be spaces where there, there are men only or women only mm-hmm. and but i think the um sex segregated spaces of all kinds are very important actually like the older i get the the more i kind of understand the value of mm-hmm. having sex segregated moments you know, to have a friendship group that's that's all female, for example, is an amazing thing. You know, and for men to talk to other men, whatever they're doing, you know, mm-hmm. it seems very important. And that would have happened a lot more in different, you know, in the past. You know, jobs and, and things would have been segregated by sex much more. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and again, we can't go back. But at the same time, I don't think people should be punished for wanting like for men wanting to have a manabund or something yeah, you know, or for women to want to spend time with other women. Yeah. Have you, in your book, what men want, have you collected stories or did you, uh, do you have anything to say about what men get out of uh, relationships with other men and what men get out of uh, men's segregated spaces and, and activities? Yeah. To some extent. I mean, I don't go into sports. Like I t- sort of deliberately say, I'm not, you know, going to talk about sports because that's okay. like, yeah. Huge, no, but it's a huge area. I mean, like you talk about gaming, though. Like, yeah, we, I talk. I oh. mean, I talk about. Um, well, I talk about the game a lot. I talk about different forms of game. Game. I talk oh, okay. about pickup artists, yeah. and you know that. Yeah. That's game. And that, is that? You know, do you do you think of that of, uh, as kind of uh, a male way of of looking at things? A male uh, kind of uh, something that jives with the male mentality. Uh, gaming and and thinking of things as as that I think it's a human system. thing. I mean, I think okay. you know, yeah, I, yeah. I I I yeah. like the Hitler uh, argument about Homo Ludens. You know, yes. that we're all game playing. You know that, and yeah. so I'm basically yeah. just saying like we should play more fun games. You know that, that the games we're told to play are just really boring, and we can play yeah. more experimental yeah. games. Come up with our own yeah. games. That's why I like flirtation. That's, yeah, exactly. That's, that's and so flirtation is one of those sorts of games, right? It's like, yeah. and you know, but it's it, it's a problem if people don't want to play you know so yeah. i think one thing that had like the, original then the game, game is to get is, them to play the game with you which is a whole other game yeah exactly but the original pickup artists they were cool in a way they were awful but they did run the risk of like being punched in the face or having yeah. real life interactions because they were actually going up to people in women in bars and like yeah running that risk whereas i think you know with the apps and everything you have this kind of total homogenization yeah. kind of compartmentalization yeah, we, we've we've offloaded the game in a way to the yeah. you know, to the to the computer uh, to the Turing machine. In yeah. A way. So we're kind of missing out on that aspect of of the the fun uh, in a way. Yeah. So yeah, then everything becomes like very regulated, and I talk about this idea of like a blockchain for consent and this kind of thing. Right? Oh, could you could you expand on that? That's a clever idea. 
no well it's a terrible idea but it's yeah so it's this idea that you could record every interaction so in case you've got kind of um <laughs> sort of called up later on oh no that's a terrible idea i'm sure it's already happening yeah it was proposed <laughs> it was proposed it never got off the ground but i, I talk about this idea um, oh god, that's that's as scary as the China social credit score, but for yeah, dating, yeah, it's, oh, but I, I mean, guess the same thing. Yeah, I mean, this is sort of where we're headed, right? In a way, and yeah. I think a lot of the Me Too stuff was actually resentment about the about technology not existing at a particular point, so things couldn't be recorded. So I actually think there's a lot of stuff is resentment against the past, but not being recordable. Um, are you talking about uh, like violations of social norms up to and including uh, sexual harassment? Uh, yeah. Those weren't able to be quantified and recorded through yeah. uh, tape recorders and cell phones. You know, so it's also a kind of punishment of the past. Huh. You know? Yeah. It's, a, it's like, uh, hmm. yeah, it's, it's very hard to imagine an age now where there isn't recordability. Yeah, yeah. Uh, most so, science fiction movies are ruined for me now. Whenever they have like a private conversation between two people, that's gonna like decide the fate of the plot of the spaceship, right? It's like, don't you record everything in every corner of that spaceship? Because aren't we all recorded now? Like it's just it, it like that's something that breaks my immersion because we are infinitely recorded now. Yeah. Speaking as a podcaster. <laughs> yeah, he's recorded. <laughs> uh, obviously. Um, yeah. No. Sure. So. Yeah, we'll hmm. be talking about the hmm. different, I don't know, it's kind of question of... The, the resentment of, of technology, the resentment of the past. How do you, how, wh what's your stance then on uh, on the past, on the subjugation of women, on the, uh, the, the uneven distribution of power and resources between male and female up to and including negative resources such as death and, and certain types of suffering that were... Uh, divvied up between men and women what do you how do you what's your kind of stance towards the past and and that's important to understand the second question which is what what is your stance towards the future pessimistic optimistic how do we get to either uh you know the black pill or the red yeah or the white one um i suppose oh. <laughs> i think to, to what is the answer to the future question i'm optimistic right so i think right and and i'm not the only person who said this but like if we talk about the sexual revolution in the 60s, right, you, every revolution ends in terror. Me Too is like the terror moment in the French Revolution, right? Mm. So you have the kind of decapitation of the men yeah. who were the most um, took advantage of the sexual revolution, right? Who are the greatest sexual revolutionaries, right? These men yeah. are all punished for being too into it. And then after that, you have Thermidor, right? You have this kind of, let's say, slowing down of like the... The, the revolutionary age. urge. Yeah. So you have a you have a period in which like everything's a bit more ambiguous and a bit more mixed. Hmm. And you say, Oh yeah, there were some bad things and you know, okay, but we're okay. all here now, we have to get along and like how can we sort of talk about it? And I think, you know, hmm. so so that kind of level of negotiation and reconciliation is not to say let's deny the horrors of the past or let's not deny resentment and bad feeling and you know often very justified in some cases, but let's all acknowledge that we're all capable of harm, that all of us have made mistakes, you know, mm -hmm. blah, 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 blah. Mm -hmm. And that we're all relatively similar in certain ways. We're all human, right? And we're all, we're all mm -hmm. alive. And um, so in that sense, I think I'm optimistic because I think the kind of hyper-moralism can't hold. I think it, you know, mm. I think it's, um, it's often a manifestation of people's own guilt or their own 
feelings of inadequacy, you know, to, or meaninglessness in a way, yeah, too. Yeah. yeah, and and I think that life becomes the especially the older you get, the more ambivalent and ambiguous life becomes in certain ways. Yeah. You know, the yeah. more you realize that things aren't so straightforward, and that maybe human beings in the past had some good ideas, you know, yeah. and even if we don't uh, want to keep all of them, we might want to keep some of them, and yeah. You know, and so I, I mean, to talk about human history and the relation the history of uh, men and women is a very, very complicated thing, right? It's, it's not, I can't give you a simple story, right? Like I think the, you know, patriarchy we've already discussed to some extent. I mean, clearly, is a real thing, right? It clearly exists, and um, this complicated question of, of property and who is and who isn't property, and yeah. you know, the role of property in the relation between men and women, and uh, you know, is I don't know how to put it. It's 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 too complicated a question. We'd have to look at particular periods at particular moments and look yeah. at yeah. you know. And when we're talking about emancipation, it's like freedom to do what in what realm. You know, whether you look at like the political realm. Okay, so women got the vote just over a hundred years ago yeah. in the UK. It's not a very long time ago that women have had political representation. And yeah, already, I think there's a lot of political dispos- dispossession. I think a lot of women feel very politically dispossessed. Like, you know, I was sort of very involved in like leftist stuff for a long time. And I think you're right that there's this kind of, um, you know, a lot of men pledge allegiance to sort of feminism. But they, but if you disagree with them, they suddenly don't anymore. It's just like, you're an annoying woman, right? It's like, yeah. you are, you are... Um, free to, to kind of be political insofar as you agree yes. with me, you know, but the moment you don't agree with me, then you're, you're not, you're, you're not political anymore. You're just an annoying person. Yeah. So, well, or, I, or you're, you're in the way of my politics. And so I'm yeah. going to reg- marginalize you and regulate you to a sideline. Yeah. So I think that, you know, that the actual reality bites moment is that actually, if you do grant women political representation and emancipation in that way, then you actually have to listen to them. And they might be saying something different than what you want them to say. You know, and that's, and that's um, I think we're in this moment in some ways, hmm. you know, hmm. so that, you know, there is no going back. And I don't think people would want to go back. It's hard to imagine, right? It's, you know, once you engage in mass education, once you um, have ma- women's mass entry into the workforce, you know, you have all these, these moments and, you know, that's, that's just kind of where we are, if you like. Mm-hmm. And, you know, women still, a, a lot of them still want to be with men. You know, they, I think if if men were so awful, you'd you'd be seeing a lot more female separatist movements. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> do you, um, do you interact with the, uh, I guess Gen Z is the current crop of uh, college going youth or are you? teaching right now like lecture style are you I'm actually teaching that? adult education at the moment which is largely oh. to retired people which is very oh, okay you're you're actually working with Justin Murphy he's getting a project off the ground that looks really promising of, of projecting uh courses into the either for people to take but you're you're actually working with the college in in, in the capacity yeah but I have worked with Justin as well like I did this course on Bataille with him and I'm working yeah. on developing some other ones yeah so there's i'm doing like lots of different things i was um lecturing oh. at a university for 13 years okay. in london um yeah 
but I left. I was really ill. I had to recover from like my stupid alcohol addiction, and then I oh. took time off, and then I um, just yeah. left. And also, I didn't like the way the university was going. Like the university as such was going. I okay. Think yeah. Students were becoming very anxious, and they're borrowing so much money. You know, it's like you end up they're ending up in fifty k of debt, and you know, I just didn't think it was sustainable, and it wasn't kind of making me happy. <laughs> what 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 do you what is your take on the future of higher education writ large? Yeah. We can talk either about the academy system or just what is higher education? Where is it going to go? I I think it's going to collapse to a large degree. I think the elite institutions will remain. Um, I think you'll see more and more like diversification onto platforms, the kind of thing that Justin's doing, because, you know, we're offering a course that's like, you know, as good as something that people are borrowing like 40K for, right? So they don't get the accreditation, right? But, But if you're genuinely interested in the topic, why wouldn't you pay very little money ultimately yeah, to yeah. listen to people who know what they're talking about and have this brilliant seminar with lots of other interesting people. So I think you're going to see the fragmentation of that. And you know, I, that, with yeah. how uh, adjunct professors have been marginalized, they don't get like benefits and then they're paid very little. So if they just move to online, they get direct money. There's actually yeah. it looks more lucrative uh, to go that route for the teachers. Yeah, d- definitely. I mean, it's certainly it's it's yeah, uh, absolutely. And, and without all the bureaucracy, without all of the, you know, meetings and all of the yeah. horror that attends working yeah. at these places. Yeah. And, and the threat of being uh, canceled for <laughs> something really stupid, but because you, you yeah. complain to by the student. <laughs> No, exactly. And, you know, I think that kind of, um, you know, the inhibiting of free speech or discussion, you know, I mean, if you teach philosophy, the the whole point is to encourage people to say random things, to try out ideas, to make mistakes, you know, to test an argument. And that does require people actually being able to accept hearing difficult things or disagreement, you know, and, and if people are too frightened to say, to test out ideas, then they're never going to get better at thinking you know yeah yeah and and i am not blaming young people for feeling like that right i think that it's not it's nothing to do with them individually it's not a moral individual question but it's the general climate in which you know like let's say you having a conversation about i don't know abortion or euthanasia in a philosophy class and someone records someone saying something you know trying out an idea or saying something bad and then you know so people maybe feel like they can't say anything you know (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. In in with regards to teaching or professing, are you into like symposium, uh, small group uh, dialogue, or are you into lecturing, uh, being the rock star uh, or the <laughs> box star, perhaps? No, I don't know. I mean, anything really. I I kind yeah. of just like you know all dialogues really <laughs> says naively. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of interested in talking to, to anybody. Like, I'll speak to anybody. Mm. I don't have any kind. Of, Hence, like, the ease of getting you on my channel. Oh yeah, sure. But I mean, it's like you know, I, I was, you know, really, um, kind of punished for speaking to people like Justin and Daniel Miller, who are deemed to be, you know, beyond the pale. It's like, how can you speak to these people, even though they're perfectly reasonable and lovely people, you know? And it's. Mm. But this is kind of increasingly how it is, like this guilt by association. It's like, oh, you can't talk to him. Isn't he this? Doesn't he think that? Or whatever, you know. Hmm. But I think that's kind of ending. It must surely end because not least is it very boring. I mean, who wants to live in a world in which everyone says the same thing? 
Yeah. And there's no arguments. And, and it's going to be the worst common denominator of the same thing, too, ultimately. It's going to yeah. be like the worst of worst things that you have to say and can't say or whatever. Yeah. And, and that's a terribly boring world. Like, philosophers don't want that world. Hmm. <laughs> Was there like a moment in your development, uh, your Bildungsroman, uh, where you knew you're going to be a philosopher or why you chose to go this route? Was there something that, that said, oh, this is for me? Yeah, I think it was insomnia. I had chronic insomnia as a child and as a teenager, like brutal. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, so huh. I like struggled to sleep all the time and to the extent that it was absolutely damaging my, my life. And yeah. I suppose just in that kind of um, just permanent wakefulness when there was nobody there to talk to, everyone else is asleep, you know, and I suppose just that kind of absolute openness to um, thoughts of all kinds. I don't know. And then I would just huh. read manically. So I kind of filled my head with all of these ideas as well. And then I couldn't sleep. And so I suppose it was that. <laughs> huh. So you, you, you started with the symposium in, in your head then? Yeah, I suppose so. Huh, wow. Yeah. And what's next for you after uh, you do your uh, wild book tell, uh, tour about men and wanting desire? Yeah, well, I I don't know. I mean, I, I, I'd like to, I'd actually quite like to write a book about Gen X being oh. a member of Gen X. And I, I Are think, you one? Yeah, I am, yeah. Yeah, and me I too. Think, yeah, I think there's... It's kind of shocking to realize that, that I, I thought you were a millennial. Yeah, I no no I'm I'm actually well I don't know do you do you talk about how old you are do you mention this in your I, it's all about the guest and every time <laughs> I talk to a woman about this I get uh, residual uh, surrogate offendedness from certain females like oh, no, never no, ask no, that never say that yeah no 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 I so like I'm 42 so I was okay. born in the late, late 70s and um, yeah. no no but it, but it's it's just really funny because I I I I I was really like overweight and ill and addicted a few years ago and I looked really, really bad and then I got really fit. So it's quite funny. And I, I mean, and then you got canceled. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, cause I could think clearly again, but, um, huh. no, so, so I'm very interested in Gen X though, because of this, this sandwich nature and the fact that all of our heroes are dead and you know, there's something very interesting about being part of the last generation that had a childhood without the internet. I yeah. think so there's and obviously you have figures like Brett Easton Ellis who are very interesting commentators mm -hmm. in this regard. But I I think there's yeah. kind of more to be said about Gen X. And I've just been reading this book about hmm. boomers and it's very funny. Hmm. And um yeah, so I think there's a kind of yeah, maybe something I'd like to say about our generation. Yeah, there, there's a there's a kind of this wave effect that's taken where we were kind of overshadowed by the boomers storytelling wise, just the, the growing up in the shadow of the 60s, where they had this great coming out, and they had all this great art, and they had all these really important movements. And we were kind of in this slump of, uh, I guess, in, in our coming of age, uh, you know, H.W. Uh, Bush, and then uh, Clinton, which is like, okay, I guess, PC culture, kind of, you know, and then the and then the dot com boom, right? And then, but we kind of missed out on a lot of the, uh, you know, like the big uh, social change. And now we're kind of watching another crop of youth, like experience a resurgence of kind of boomer energy in a way, if I may use that phrase. And I, I find that our role now is to, because we aren't, we, we're going to, we're going to, we're going to age out of uh, positions of power because the boomers are going to hold on to it for so 
so long is just kind of going to drop into the laps of maybe even just Gen Z. But our, our it seems like our role is to be counselors in a way, is to add kind of a different voice to the conversation and yeah. guide people towards uh, use our tools of irony, sarcasm and apathy towards yes. the good of mankind. Finally, <laughs> I completely agree with you. I, I really, really do. I, I honestly think these are very interesting cultural um, skills that we were taught, you know, voluntarily or otherwise. And I think humor, you know, is so important. And, and, you know, a lot of the time it's like, you know, when you see all these sort of online battles and people misunderstanding, it's like, look, if we just sat down and like we talked about it and we'd realize that like we're all idiots and like, yeah. you know, <laughs> it's not that big a deal. And like, do you know what I mean? It's like, yeah. Sexist, not- racist, who cares? Be a misogynist. Yeah. Or no, not a misogynist, an anthropope, a misanthrope. Yeah. Right? That, that's know, what we should all aim for. But in a way, but in it, but it, but, I, but like genuinely, I think there's a political value in that. In all seriousness, which is to say, like if you can lightheartedly deal with serious things, it's yeah. not to diminish their seriousness, but it's actually to prevent them from escalating. Yeah. You know, so into yeah. properly warlike confrontation situations. Or terror. So, yeah. So I mean, I li- I really like yeah exactly, and I really like your idea of this. Um, yeah, the role of counselor or like you know someone who diffuses a situation. Yeah. You know, to yeah. say, look, like, yeah, everybody suffers. Like, let's acknowledge, you know, yeah. how weird life is. Nobody knows. The really avuncular generation, right? The the, yeah. the the uncles and the aunts, you know, like cool, we're all not? addicted to gambling and, and pills and stuff. But we come in and lighten up the room. Yeah. And just to be like, hey, guys, you know, oh, whatever. <laughs> huh. I think, yeah, I, I think there is there is a role for, for us in this way. And I, yeah. Hmm. I, but but it's a serious role, but a, like a funny one too. And yeah, just yeah. To, just to kind of calm everyone down, just be like, <laughs> it's okay. It's okay. It's fine. It'll it's be fun. okay if you don't yeah. fuck it up too much. <laughs> are you um are you going to set up a podcast like everybody every other academic in the world, or you do you have any uh, other multimedia engagements that we can plug or uh, on your? Uh, I mean, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm currently starting one. It's um with uh, two other people. Um, it's called the Lack. But it's not out yet. Um, oh, like the lack. The lack. Yeah, it's kind of quite psychoanalytic, and it talks about films huh. and things. Oh, really? Um, huh. Yeah, but uh, no, I yeah, I don't know. I mean, like everybody, I'm probably so torn about the internet that half the time I just want to like you know throw the thing out of the window and then run away and live in a field. And yeah. so I don't know. I think I was just thinking today about how the sunlight you know destroys screens. You can't really see your screen when the sun is out you know and this is yeah. why this is why they want to cancel the sun you know this is this is the thing <laughs> the hill i will die on i will wait hold on not, they're canceling they, the sun now they're gonna cancel the sun they're gonna they want to block out the sun <laughs> honestly wait, wait. <laughs> bill gates like, has this idea to like you know um block out the sun it's like to out, outsource a photosynthesis or something yeah no no, no it's really Mars? really bad yeah, so, Wait, so there's this, are you serious? Like Bill Gates yeah. is going to make a Chernobyl chamber over our planet? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're going to block out the sun. So seriously, like this, this is the one thing I do care about is not blocking out the sun. And this is, this is the war I will fight. Okay. okay. Wait, you're serious though. They're, yeah. they're going to make like some, some Ray-Bans for the, the Southern and Northern it's, Hemisphere. I can send you the link. That's what okay. they're proposing. It's one of their great suggestions to save the oh. planet. The Great Reset, man. Yeah. This, those freaking boomers, man. They're they're I like know. turning into mad mad scientists now. They need to they need to retire. <laughs> like what what can they we need, do next? Like, they need to enjoy their 
gated community or whatever they, you know, read some books. Yeah. Enjoy the sun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, seriously. Nina, you're you're a wonderful person to talk to. A wonderful interlocutor, uh, interlocutor. Uh, I, I have to go back to my OED um, to to figure out the correct pronunciation. But it was great <laughs> to have you on. Thank you for joining me. No, no, no worries. I hope. Uh, yeah, I hope you have a lovely day. And it was nice to be on. And I was a bit um, deranged because I didn't spend too much time outside today. So I was a little bit more discombobulated than I would normally be. I'd normally be a bit more. Ordered, I, but. I really, really enjoyed the pace and our <laughs> scattery yeah. uh, Gen X way of uh, picking up <laughs> topics and, and throwing them around like toys. Yes, it's also a strategy, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> well, cool. Um, I'll end the recording there. Congratulations for reaching the end of the discussion. If you enjoyed it, do be sure to leave a review or a comment or a thumbs up or whatever you need to do to show that glorious algorithm that this is some good stuff. And do be sure to go and check that back catalog as it is brimming full of fantastic conversations. Links to provide monetary support are down there in the description as well. Have a good night.